and welcome to the Healthy Aging Podcast, the podcast where we discuss practical tools to enhance your quality of life. Here's your host, Dr. Des. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Aging Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Des, and today we have a very special guest join us. We have Dr. Emily Rosenich. Dr. Emily Rosenich is a research fellow in neuropsychology at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. Emily's research, founded by the Alzheimer's Association, investigates how heart health and genetics interact to influence the development of cognitive decline and dementia. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, very exciting to have here, and I think, uh, you know, really exciting to delve into some of the factors that influence cognitive impairment and dementia. This is certainly something that I always get asked about by people in the community. So um, we've got a lot to talk about, which is super exciting. Before we jump in, the question that I always ask our guests is uh, how they got into their chosen field and career. Uh, and I'd love to learn a little bit about how you ended up where you are. Yeah, definitely. So firstly, I think, you know, this is obviously a kind of hugely relevant topic at the moment with a significantly aging population. So this is at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. So when I kind of started my journey uh, in psychology, so I began an undergraduate psychology degree and actually growing up, I always thought that I was going to be a journalist. <laughs> Um, until I discovered psychological science uh, and I had a really great science teacher in, in high school who really encouraged me to pursue my undergraduate in psychology. So I got into the course, I had pretty strong ambitions to be a clinical psychologist. I loved talking with people, I loved coming up with kind of solutions to help people work through their problems. But then I enrolled in a course called Cognitive Neuroscience. And funnily enough, I actually wasn't supposed to be allowed to enroll <laughs> in that course. However, I somehow made it in. And the rest, honestly, a little bit cliche, but the rest was history. So I just became fascinated by the brain, uh, what was happening when in the brain when things went wrong, yeah. uh, as they often do when people uh, have a brain injury or, or a brain disease. Mm -hmm. And I was particularly interested in this question as to why some people seem to be less affected by, I guess, the negative consequences of brain insult or injury than others. So I started my career actually researching predictors of successful stroke recovery. And from there, I moved into the field of Alzheimer's disease because I began to learn how related the risk factors for both stroke and Alzheimer's disease were. Yeah, I think, um, isn't it funny how you usually just end up falling into a career that you just end mm -hmm. up loving and it's not particularly the path that you particularly saw yourself doing. And I think um, that resonates very high with me. I always thought that I was going to be a professional basketball player, but it wasn't <laughs> until someone told me that I'm only five foot 10 and, and weigh about 65 kilos that they said, you're, you're probably better off maybe picking another career, which, and then I ended up in, in medicine. So uh, exactly. there you go. Look, you, exactly. you made a, a really important point there about how some people seem to be affected by memory, cognitive issues. And then there's also this category of people who still smoke, still drink, and for some reason they don't get affected. 
a common exactly. question I get asked in the community is sort of like, what is the genetic predisposition or what role does genes play in developing cognitive issues as we get older? Yeah, it's a great question. So you. you are right that we uh, there's still so much to kind of discover in this field. So I think the first thing I want to start by saying is that uh, when we're talking about dementia, um, we need to make it really clear what that is. So dementia is uh, actually an umbrella term for any kind of impairments in thinking or memory, like you described, that can result as uh, that can occur as a result of many different disorders that affect the brain. But the most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. Now, when we're talking about genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, the most common gene that will come up is called APOE. And some people might have actually heard of this because it's been in the, the news relatively recently as uh, Chris Hemsworth, he actually revealed as part of this documentary that he's filming that he uh, discovered that he's what we call an APOE4 carrier. Yeah. Now that is a certain type of APOE genotype that places him at higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So uh, to explain this a little bit better, we all, carry two copies of the APOE gene. One copy is from our biological mother and one copy is from our biological father. And there are three different types of this APOE gene, APOE2, APOE3 and APOE4. And we can carry different kind of variations of it. Now, carriage of one or more of APOE4 alleles is the strongest genetic risk factor for late onset Alzheimer's disease but it is just still a risk gene. So yeah. what that means is that if you have that, uh, that genotype, it doesn't mean that you'll definitely go on to develop Alzheimer's disease in the future. It just means that you're at higher risk. So that's the gene that's got the most research backing behind it, I suppose. Um, but as I'll kind of, I guess we'll get into further in this podcast, Genes are not the only thing that influence risk for Alzheimer's disease, and they can actually interact with other more modifiable risk factors. Yeah, and I think um, just to reiterate some of the key points you said there, I think that dementia is a, an umbrella term, as you said, for people that have issues with their memory. There's, you know, multiple different types of dementia, and dementia mm -hmm. is like any other disease. There's a spectrum. So you have the people that are in the community that are, still driving, cooking, playing tennis, looking after the grandkids. Um, yeah. And then you obviously have the opposite end of the spectrum. And I think there's this negative connotation sometimes about, you know, dementia means that, you know, you have the advanced stages of disease where you're in an yes. aged care facility. And so people are always worried about that, which is why they always yeah. ask me about the genetic predisposition. But as you said, it just because you have a gene, doesn't mean that you are therefore going to develop the disease or illness. And you sort exactly. of briefly touched on it then, but I think, you know, apart from genetic predisposition, what are some of the risk factors or lifestyle factors that could either protect you or cause you to have an increased risk of developing memory problems as you get older? Mm -hmm. So over the past, I'd say two decades, there has been this kind of increased focus in this field on identifying these modifiable risk factors. And we've actually identified quite a lot. So recent um, and sorry, I'm, actually, sorry, Emily, just to cut you off, when we say modifiable risk factors, just for the audience, what we mean is like these are risk factors that you can uh, 
personally change in terms of your lifestyle. So there are risk factors that you can't change, such as age. We unfortunately all get a bit older, but you can change, you know, other risk factors like smoking, drinking, exercise, those types of things. So when we say modifiable, that's some of the things that we refer to. Yes, exactly. So things that can be changed by making certain modifications, I guess, to your behaviour or lifestyle habits. Um, so there are multiple of these modifiable risk factors that we've now identified. Uh, in an essence, the key kind of risk factors for cognitive decline or dementia are things like heart health, uh, uh, sorry, poor heart health, so high blood pressure, uh, high cholesterol, uh, uh, being physically inactive, um, problems with your sleep, uh, problems with your mood, and basically just not being very socially or cognitively engaged with the world. So um, I, I think that last one, that last one you said is a is a particularly powerful one that has come to the forefront in the past couple of years with COVID, where that mm -hmm. element of social isolation, when we talk about mood, we're talking about people that have either a low mood or depressed or anxious, but that lack of social engagement is actually such a protective factor to stopping mm. you from developing memory problems down the track. So, you know, I, I say that to everyone, it, it can actually be more dangerous to keep yourself isolated and stay at home than it can be to get out into the community. Exactly right. And I think one of the kind of biggest challenges that we've come up against this field in a way is that a lot of these risk factors are actually really interrelated. So, you know, if you're not feeling great mentally, you've got low mood, then you might be less likely to want to go out and exercise or socialise. But we really need to, I guess, kind of prioritise um, just getting out into the community, getting socially and cognitively engaged. Uh, you know, volunteering is a great way that people can do that. Um, attending community clubs, uh, starting a walking group or finding one online. There are, you know, there are so many different groups um, and freely kind of accessible activities that you can be a part of these days. But the key thing I think is just to find something that you genuinely enjoy as well, because if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, as you said, it's it's different to different people. There's not this one sort of rule where if you play, you know, if you do crosswords or jigsaw puzzles every day, that that therefore means that you're going to um, have a lower risk or prevent you from developing cognitive decline. It's really individualised. I think the, the thing I also say to people is it can be very scary and overwhelming to almost alter their entire lifestyle because a lot of people, for mm -hmm. instance, you know, they're, they're not particularly physically active. They don't like to socialise. They, mm -hmm. you know, they've been smoking for 40 years, you know, and they don't particularly want to stop that or they don't. It's hard to stop. And, and the thing I say to those people is that you just need to make a small change in each of those little areas mm -hmm. and collectively that can have a huge impact on minimising your risk of sort of health outcomes down the track. And so to everyone out there, it's sort of the mantra that we say is like, let's not wait for something to happen. So let's not wait to become unwell. Let's be more mm -hmm. proactive rather than reactive. So let's try and make some small changes now that we know is going to stop or, or help prevent things down the track. Mm -hmm. um, out of curiosity, Emily, like you said, a whole heap of things there about potential risk factors like 
uh, poor sleep, mood, high uh, blood pressure, high cholesterol, lack of exercise. Is there one of those that's particularly more prominent than the others or is it sort of that they all have the same level of risk associated with them? Uh, we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> but basically uh, in, in, let's say, a midlife stage, with which we study uh, at Monash University mostly, so people age between uh, 40 and 70 years old, that's typically our kind of uh, target age range that we focus on. So in that life stage, it seems to be that the most important kind of risk factors are these ones that relate to heart health. Mm. Um, so the ones that are, you know, hypertension, high cholesterol, being physically inactive, they seem to be really important and they seem to kind of predict, uh, you know, the, the health of the brain in these later life stages. So certainly it seems like looking after your heart, particularly in your midlife stages, is really important for your brain. But yeah. there's still so much we need to learn. Yeah, of course, of course. And I mean, not to dwell in too deep into this, but I think like to me, you know, some people might be thinking, well, the heart is in our chest, the brain is obviously in our head, the two mm -hmm. different organs. How can something that's affecting our heart increase our risk of memory problems down the track do you want to just say in very maybe broad terms why there's such a close interconnection between those two different organs yeah so when um particularly when we're talking about heart health risk factors like high blood pressure or high cholesterol that aren't being controlled medically via medication or some type of lifestyle modification the brain often ends up being the end point of damage that can uh, occur to blood vessels as a result of those uncontrolled uh, heart health risk factors. So there, uh, you know, the blood vessels can become impacted by that, and that is not good for the brain. So there is a whole vasculature as well as in the heart that is in the brain that keeps blood flowing properly throughout all areas of our and. Uh, when blood can't get to where it needs to be in the brain, that's when a stroke happens. So the, I won't get into the details yeah. of stroke specifically, but, yeah, yeah, certainly the vasculature in the brain is very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the way that I normally tell people when I speak to them is that, you know, your brain has big vessels, medium vessels, and very, very tiny, small blood vessels. And those tiny, small blood vessels in the brain need to deliver lots of nutrients to the cells in the brain and get rid of all the waste products. Mm -hmm. And those small little blood vessels are particularly fragile and be can become damaged due to things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol over the years. And so if you damage those small blood vessels, there is therefore a lack of blood supply to deliver nutrients to get rid of the waste products. And that's when the damage in the cycle starts to occur. Um, one of the common questions I get asked is, you know, yes, I understand that I need to be physically active. Yes, I need, I understand that I need to do mental stimulation exercises. But maybe if we talk about both of them, so the physical exercise and the mental exercise, like mm -hmm. what is the recommendation in terms of like how often they should be doing it and what type of exercise for both the body and the mind? Yes. 
So that's such a great point and it's something Thank that you. we hear very often from our participants as well. And I just want to say that just because many of these strategies sound simple, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily yeah. easy or straightforward to actually modify or amend in our daily life. Yeah. So humans are notoriously bad at changing their behaviour. So the most important kind of exercises we need to be doing there's recommendations around physical activity uh, guidelines that have been put out so around 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise every week i don't think in terms of brain health that there has been specifically one type of exercise that's been shown to be more beneficial for brain health than another i think the most important thing here is to choose something that works for you that's accessible that you enjoy and you're going to want to keep doing. So as you said before, kind of small steps, making modifications for your abilities, uh, your, your fitness level, uh, and just choosing something that you think, you know, maybe even you could do it in a group setting. Yeah. Because this is one thing I hear a lot from our participants too, is that they struggle to find the motivation to do these things alone. And oftentimes yeah. what they need and want is just someone to come along on that journey with them. So if you can do it in a group setting as well, whether that's a walking club or, you know, going to the gym and doing a group fitness class, that might give you the kind of extra boost of, of motivation and a sense of community as well. Yeah, and I think you raise a good point there, that there's this negative connotation that if someone is struggling with their memory or at risk of their memory, that they are the only individual that's going through this. And it's almost mm -hmm. like they're almost scared to divulge that to people. But the reality is, is that there is, you know, so many people in the community that are facing similar fears or issues. And that it's just about once you connect with those individuals and realize that you're not alone, that has such a powerful mm -hmm. tool in just helping you in so many ways, helping with your mental health, your physical health, your social health. And so, exactly. But, but I mean, as you said, it's it, the hardest step is always the first step. And so mm -hmm. just to come back to the point that we always reiterate, like let's try and be proactive about our health rather than reactive, mm -hmm. because the sooner we face something, the sooner we can do something about it, um, which is where we can make the most difference and change. Um, mm -hmm. Emily, my, I mean, I think like it's been really, really exciting to hear about some of the stuff that you're sort of doing on the forefront of research to mm -hmm. understand the correlation between genetics and modifiable risk factors with memory problems. Um, we always ask our guests a question that we get in uh, our emails. And this question actually is from my dad. Shout out to, to Des Graham Senior. Um, <laughs> shout out. Yeah, shout out. He'll be very excited. Um, he does some work with uh, Multiple Sclerosis Australia and he was particularly uh, interested and wanted to specifically for me to ask you about what is some of the current research that has been done by the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health Sciences to explore ways to prevent or delay memory problems? Great, great question. I'll let him know, he, you know yeah. he'll be very yeah. chuffed. Let him know, let him know, <laughs> he's doing great work. So currently at the moment, we are running a very exciting 
what is called a randomized control trial out of the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health. So it's called Better Brains and it is essentially an online lifestyle intervention trial. And what it aims to test is whether having uh, health coaching that is personalized to you, your preferences, needs, wants, as well as your risk factors for dementia can actually help you modify those risk factors and delay or prevent memory and thinking decline. And we're specifically looking at this in people who are aged between 40 into 70 years old and who have a family history of dementia. So one of the things that we're most excited about with this trial is that it's actually run totally online. So people can be involved uh, no matter where they are in Australia. We have over 1,500 people around Australia involved already. Great. And almost 30% of those people live in rural or regional Australia, which we're really, really excited about because there is such a huge kind of divide in terms of healthcare needs uh, across metro and rural and regional areas. Yeah. So we're very excited about the Better Brains trial. Um, is and that, we... I mean, I think, I mean, that's, that is it's super exciting. I mean, I grew up in Wilcannia, well, which um, mm -hmm. some people know is, is out near Broken Hill and all my family live out in rural regional areas. And to hear that there's an online trial that's been done about being proactive and developing strategies to tackle some of your lifestyle factors is, is I think, mm -hmm. a great initiative. I mean, um, if people wanted to learn more about the trial at all, what would be the best way for them to find out some more information? Yes, sure. So they can visit our website to learn more as well as to sign up. So the website is www.betterbrains.org.au. Okay, fantastic. And we'll make sure we put that on our website, um, www.healthyagingpodcast.com, uh, as well as uh, some links to websites and a bit of a, a blog of what we've spoken about today. But just before we wrap up, Emily, I think today's been, you know, super insightful into some of the strategies and insights into what we can do to help protect our brains. But if there's one thing you wanted people to take away from today, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Okay, one thing. Here we go. Look after your heart. <laughs> okay. Look after your mental health. Prioritize your sleep and just get socially and cognitively engaged with your world. Okay, fantastic. That's four things, but I'll let you have that. But um, thank you so much for coming on to the show today, Emily. And once again, to all the listeners out there, um, you'll be able to learn more about the amazing work that Emily's doing on our website, www.healthyagingpodcast.com. And as my Arnie Lee always says, you can't help getting older, but you don't have to get old. Awesome. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. This podcast is proudly supported by Geriatric Care Australia. The content on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and should not replace the care provided by your physician. The podcast is for informational purposes only. Due to each individual's unique circumstances, please consult your health professional for any medical advice or treatment.